0: Exodus 16, verse 1. It says, And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came unto the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full, for you have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. And it shall come to pass that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And Moses and Aaron said unto all the children of Israel, At evening then you shall know that the Lord hath brought you out from the land of Egypt. And in the morning then you shall see the glory of the Lord, for that he hears your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we that you murmur against us? And Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full. For that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which you murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses spoke unto Aaron, Say unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he hath heard your murmuring. And it came to pass, as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak unto them, saying, At evening you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And it came to pass, that at even the quails came up, and covered the camp, And in the morning, the dew lay round about the host. And when the dew that lay was gone up, behold, the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoar frost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, it is manna, for they wist not what it was. And Moses said unto them, this is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating. An omer for every man according to the number of your persons. Take ye every man for them which are in his tents. And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. And when they did meet it with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to is eating. And then in chapter seventeen, again in verse one. It says, and all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin, after their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, 'Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water and the people murmured against Moses and said, wherefore is this that you've brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord saying, what shall I do unto this people? they be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, go on before the people And take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Oreb, and you shall smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, choose us out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said unto him, and fought with Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi, for he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, as we look into uh, the word of your testimony of what you did in the lives of your people of old and also what it points to and teaches us uh, in our walk with you, in our relationship with you, and in our desire to know you today. So would you please, Lord, open this text before us and that in it we might see Jesus and that on this day that we commemorate and celebrate what you did for us, O oh Lord, out of your love and sacrifice, God, that we would rejoice with you and in you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. And so we open our hearts to you now and we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us from heaven and it's in Jesus' name that we ask it, amen. The Bible tells us in the New Testament book of Acts, that known of God or known by God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Jesus would say to his disciples or to the Pharisees, actually, that were challenging his authority. He would say, you search the scriptures and in them you think that you have life. But he says, I tell you, they are they which testify of me. We recall the scene when Jesus walked with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. And as he walked with them, it says, beginning with Moses and then carrying through the prophets all the way through the scriptures, he expounded to them all things concerning himself. And so the Bible teaches us that from the very beginning, God knew exactly what he was doing. And at the very end of the Bible, It tells us that when Jesus is seen in his glorified state, that he is seen as a lamb that had been slain from the foundation of the world. And so if we put all that together, what we understand is that before God even said light be and light was, he already knew everything that would take place upon the earth. He knew that when he created man, that man would fall. He knew what that fall would then bring into the world. He knew what his solution would be to that fall in that he would send his son into the world to bear upon himself the sin of mankind and thus man would somehow be able to be redeemed back into a right relationship with God. And then he knew how all things would culminate and he saw us even here in this time in the course that he would have upon us. And all of the Bible centralizes and unfolds to that one moment in God's history when his son hung upon a cross. Everything before that time was looking forward to and preparing the way for it. And everything since that time has been looking back upon it and glorying in it. And so the cross, what we celebrate here tonight on this Good Friday, becomes the focal point of the whole reason and purpose why God made all that God made. A demonstration of his great love and the only sufficient revelation of who he is in heaven and on earth. It all took place upon the cross. Now, you might think, well, what does the text that you read tonight in Exodus 16 and 17 have to do with that? It has everything to do with that. As God was leading the children of Israel and unfolding his plan with them, he was growing up a nation And much of the early part of the Old Testament centers around God's development of his people Israel and their um, relationship with him paving the way for the cross. He set them free from slavery in Egypt. Hopefully most of us know the story of how God raised up Moses and sent him into Egypt and brought plagues and judgment and the Passover night upon the Egyptians. And then he set the children of Israel free, opening up the Red Sea and the whole nation of them crossed it on dry ground and safely then making it to the other side. He closed the waters in on Pharaoh's army that was pursuing them, uh, seeking to uh, go behind the deal and, and, and then to kill them. And so what you find is you have Israel, you have them brought up, developed And then you have them set free from slavery in Egypt and now they find themselves on the other side of the Red Sea. And so uh, um, all of that happened in that early portion of the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that all of those things happened unto them as examples for us upon whom the ends of the world are come. In other words, at the same time that God was raising up a nation and through that nation revealing himself to them and preparing the way for his son to come, in the same way God did that with them, so also he works in our lives. And so they came through the Red Sea and in so doing, they were saved. They were set free from their slavery in Egypt. And they would be able to, each one of them, standing there on that saved side shore of the Red Sea, they would be able to look back and clearly see how God had miraculously intervened, removed them from their life and placed them safely on the other side of something. There would be no doubt in any one of their minds, whether it was man, woman, or child. They saw the sea open and they themselves crossed it on dry ground. And so too it is for you and me. We're in the world and we're brought up in it and its ideals and what its curse has brought into this world is upon us and upon our lives and we we walk in that but then by god's mercy and his grace he brings the message of the gospel and of the cross to bear upon our hearts and lives it pierces through the outer shell of our skin and then our intellect and it gets into our heart and there in that place we recognize and realize that jesus is the only answer for god's salvation And by faith, in whatever way that God reaches us individually, we put our trust in Him for the forgiveness of our sins. And upon doing that, something happens within our life. The Holy Spirit of God comes inside, and He, as it were, lifts us out of everything that we had been before we knew Him, and He takes us to the other side of something, And all we know when we get there is that what we were is gone and our whole life is changed. And in hindsight, we can say, yes, God is real and he's done something in my life. As indescribable as it is, I know that he's done something within my life. But just like the children of Israel, they would stand on that side of the shore, now saved from the Red Sea, seeing clearly God behind them. But looking forward, they would see nothing but a wilderness, They would just see a desert and they would say, well, what now? We've been saved. We've been forgiven. But now who is this God and what is he going to do within my life? The bad news is that they had no clue that they would look at that and all they would see was the wilderness. They would see Moses and they would quickly forget about the miracle that set them free. And they would think, well, this is all great. We've been set free. But now what in the world does this mean to me? And that's the same thing we go through, isn't it? We go through the same thing. We know that we're saved, but now what, God? I know I'm not going back to my old life. What do you have for my new life? The good news is that God knew exactly where they were. And God knew exactly what he was going to do within their lives. And God was leading them faithfully with a cloud by day that they would stay under for shade and a pillar of fire by night that would give them light and warmth and they would be able to follow it and God would be able to lead them. And God knew that he was taking them to a place that he had promised to Abraham so many hundreds of years beforehand and that he had a destiny for them and a plan and a salvation that meant something beyond just coming out of Egypt. The Bible says he brought them out that he might bring them in. Now in the interim between when they crossed the Red Sea And when they came to Mount Sinai, which would be a period of exactly three months to the day, God had a couple of divine lessons that he wanted to teach his people, newly saved and newly brought into a relationship with himself. The first lesson would have to do with their physical needs, the fact that they would find themselves in a wilderness, completely bereft of everything that they had had in Egypt and that somehow they would need to eat and be sustained in that place. And so he would deal with the hunger, the physical needs that they had. And he would teach them concerning his care for them in that, the manna that would come down from heaven. The second need that God would address would be the spiritual need that they had. The water in the Bible always representing the spiritual thirst or the soul need that man has inside and God would supply water for them at Rephidim as water would come forth from the rock and then thirdly God would teach them that they would need help in this hostile world that we live in as they would be attacked from behind from Amalek and God would supernaturally deliver them though they were outnumbered and outsourced in every way imaginable yet God would be with them in it. And he needed them to learn those lessons right at the onset of their relationship with him. And so too, it is with us. We come into this relationship with God. And as we come in, we recognize everything that was my old life is gone. The Bible says that old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And thus my life is new. So what now, God, how is it that you are going to take care of me in my life now that you are working within my life? God promises in his word that he will take ownership of our lives when we give ourselves to him. In the gospel of Matthew chapter six, Jesus says four times in 10 verses, he says, take no anxious thought for your life. What will we eat? What will we drink? what will we put on? He says, Solomon in all of his glory wasn't clothed like the flowers of the field or fed like the birds are of the air. And he says, how much more will your heavenly father feed and clothe you, O you of little faith? David would say in Psalm chapter 37, he would say, I have been young and now I've been old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor their seed begging for bread. Paul would write to the church at Philippi and he would say, my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in glory. And we learn that very early on in our Christian life is that God as a shepherd leads his people as a sheep and in that he promises that he will provide for the things that we have need of. I remember being 19 years old and finding myself very much like the children of Israel on that far side of the Red Sea. My past was behind me. I knew it was gone. And the future just looked so vast, as vast as a desert and so empty. And I remember being in that place in my life at that time and being without a job and being in debt and being without any direction for my life or path to walk on, being without a spouse and just feeling like I had absolutely nothing, that God, you've saved me, but what have you saved me for? And I remember on a specific occasion, I got in my car and I drove out to a park and it was wintertime and I took a walk on a frozen pond. And fell in. No, didn't, not really. Wanted to. But I remember just going through and one by one declaring all of these things before God and saying, God, you saved my life and these are your promises. And this is the situation. God, I'm in debt. God, I'm jobless. God, I have no direction for my life. God, what are you doing? Why did you save me? And one by one, just bringing those things before the Lord. That was when I was 19. By the time I was 20, I had a job. I had no debt. I was beginning to see a path form for the future of my life and I was engaged to be married. And all of those things happened in such a supernaturally natural way that I almost had to be reminded that I had prayed about those things and that my life had changed that much in such a short period of time. And I began to learn early in my walk that he's the one that provides for the needs of his people. He takes care of the physical needs that we have. The second thing that God wanted them to know and that they needed to know is that he is the answer for the water need that man has. It tells us there in the text that as they traveled from the wilderness of sin and now they make their way to Rephidim, the next place that God was leading them on the way to Sinai, that the people thirsted. And you can imagine, I mean, they've been eating this bread now. God is taking care of that need. But they're traveling through the scorching hot desert day by day, and there's no spring. There's no lake or pond or store of water. There's absolutely nothing for them to drink. And so they're parched and they're dry, and there's a legitimate need that's inside. And so again, they chide and they murmur against Moses and Aaron and say, why did God lead us into this wilderness for this cause of killing us so that we could die of thirst? And God spoke to Moses and he said, Moses, this is the way that water's to be provided for the people. He said, I want you to take the elders of Israel and I want you to stand upon the rock in the presence of the people. And I will stand before you there and you're to take the rod of God in your hand. And in their sight, as I stand before you, you are to smite the rock and I will provide water for my people. And out of obedience to God, Moses struck the rock and water began to flow. And the congregation of the people that were all there began to drink as God began to satisfy them with the water that they needed. Now, water in the Bible always represents, at least as it relates to drinking water or satisfying or quenching the thirst, the deep spiritual need that every man has. When Jesus met the woman at the well in John chapter 4, He struck up a conversation with her as she was there in the middle of the day. And he asked her for a drink of water and and she looked at him and she said, you've got nothing to draw with. And Jesus said, if you knew who it was that was talking with you right now, you would have asked of me and I would have given you living water. He said, whoever drinks of this water, the physical water of this well, they're gonna thirst again because it can only satisfy temporarily. But the water that I give will spring forth into everlasting life. In John chapter 7, when Jesus was at the Feast of Tabernacles, on the great day of the feast, it says that he stood up in the midst of everyone who was there. And he cried out to all of them. And he said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his belly will gush forth or flow forth torrents or rivers of living water. And it says, this spake he of the Holy Spirit, which was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so the water of quenching in the Bible speaks of the thirst, the spiritual thirst that every man, woman and child has within this world and that can only be satisfied by the one source that God has allowed or ordained, and that is Jesus Christ himself. The wisest man that ever lived, King Solomon, wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, and a man with unlimited resources and wisdom beyond that which anyone ever had, he gave himself to try everything that this world possesses to try to satisfy and quench the thirst that he had inside. And after listing off everything that you and I could possibly Think of or imagine to try. He came to the end of that and he said, All of it is vanity and vexation of spirit. And the result of the pursuit of trying to satisfy a spiritual thirst with a physical something is that he came to the conclusion that he absolutely hated life. But many years later, in thinking that through and then writing it down, he says this concerning that as it relates to you and me. Solomon says, that God has set eternity in our hearts. In the King James, it says that he has set the world in our hearts. In other words, God has set each one of us on a course in this life to try to find the solution and to quench that thirst that we have inside. And we try, don't we? In every stage of our life, we try whatever is in our ability to reach and we put it into this vacuum that's called our soul and we try to satisfy the thing that's inside. But here's what you need to know tonight is that you can never satisfy a spiritual thirst with a physical something. It is absolutely impossible. There is only one thing that can satisfy that thirst and it is the water that God gives, the water that he provided in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And the good news is that that water is available to all. And God needs us to know that as we walk with him, is that even after we're saved, the only thing that will ever satisfy our lives is Jesus Christ and his presence in our lives, his purpose for our lives and his person in our lives that's the only thing that will ever satisfy anyone and there is nothing else for all of eternity god needed them to know that third thing that god needed them to know is that we live in a hostile world and we do don't we it says they went from there and it says that amalek showed up and amalek represents the perpetual enemies of god the perpetual enemies of God in the Old Testament took on a physical uh, um, uh, manifestation in the Ites, the Amalekites, or the Enes, the Philistines, and all of their you know people. But throughout every age, from generation to generation, the enemies of God perpetually are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Amalek represents them, and probably more than any of the other two, he represents the flesh, the enemy that lives within you and I. The devil's been defeated. And the world's been placed under his feet. He's overcome the world. But the flesh is something that we deal with on a basis, a regular basis, isn't it? And it tells us that as they journeyed and they were in the place called Rephidim, which means rest, a resting place. And Jesus is a resting place, isn't he? And we find rest in him. And we say, I'm resting in Jesus, but there's an attack. There's something coming upon my life. There's turmoil within. There's hostility coming from without. There's persecution and unacceptance. There's temptations and trials and strains. What in the world is going on here within my life? Well, Joshua and Moses commune together concerning this attack of this group of people, the Amalekites? And Moses said to Joshua, here's the solution, here's what you're to do. You're to choose out men, men that are able and men that can fight. And you go down into the valley and fight. And listen, understand this, Christian, is that this life, this Christian life that we live, it is a land of hills, in a land of valleys, just like the promised land was for them in the Old Testament. And there are valleys in this life and there are enemies in those valleys. And Moses, the high priest, looked at Joshua, the general, and he said, you go down into the valley and fight. Don't run, fight. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take Aaron and her, and I'm going to go up on the mountain and I'm going to intercede for you there. You go down, I'll go up. And so Joshua listened to the command of Moses. He went down, Moses went up with Aaron and her. And the Bible tells us a very interesting thing happened while they were there in that setting. It says that as long as Moses' hands were raised, a symbol of intercession and prayer and standing in the gap for Joshua in the valley, it says that Joshua prevailed. Unarmed, unprepared, and untrained. Never fought before. They were slaves in Egypt, just fresh set out. But now they're called to fight. But with Moses interceding with his hands in the air, it says that Joshua And the children of Israel prevailed against Moses. But when Moses' hands became heavy and began to stoop and to drop, it says that then Amalek began to prevail and Joshua would lose ground to the Amalekites that were trying to kill them so early in their salvation. And so the solution is that Aaron propped himself on one side, her on the other side, and they held Moses' arms up so that they stayed there. They were fastened in that position. And in that, Joshua, down in the valley, was assured the victory. And it says that he discomfited, not destroyed, because Amalek would be a perpetual enemy. God would have wars with him from generation to generation. He will one day be destroyed. You could say, praise the Lord for that. But in that moment, God said, I will have perpetual fights with him and he was discomfited and he was put to flight and joshua and the children of israel succeeded in their fight against uh, um, the perpetual enemy of the amalekites now how did god provide the victory for the children of israel in this vulnerable state because of the hostility that came first of all it was because of the intercession of the high priest moses Moses in the Old Testament is a picture or what we call a type of Jesus Christ, the great high priest that you and I uh, put our faith and our trust in. Jesus would say, or Moses would say, prophesying of Jesus that would come, he would say that God will raise up a prophet like unto me. And as Moses was the apostle and high priest of Israel, Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of our confession, it says in the book of Hebrews. And so they prevailed in part because of the intercession of the high priest. And the Bible tells us this concerning you and I in the battles that we face in the turmoil of this life. It says that we have a great and faithful high priest, Jesus Christ, who ever lives to make intercession for us. You say, well, what happens if the hands of Jesus Christ get heavy and he begins to drop them And we begin to lose ground to the enemy. That never needs to happen. And here's why. Because the other element in this that brought Joshua and the children of Israel victory, it wasn't just the fact that that Moses was interceding for them. But once Joshua, who would be down in the valley in the sight of Moses on the hill, would see this progression and this pattern of the hands being raised, victory, and the hands dropping, defeat, once he saw Joshua, Moses, and his hands being propped up by Aaron and her, it would give to him the assurance and the confidence that now I know that I'm going to prevail, that this battle is supernatural. It's more than my skillfulness and my ability to wield the sword. It's more than my ability to outsmart or outfight this enemy that I'm against. It has everything to do with him whose arms are propped up for me. And it's an incredible picture if you put yourself in Joshua's shoes. Because as he would turn and he would look and he would see the state of Moses' intercession, what he would see is he would see three men up on a hill. And the man in the middle would have his hands raised, fastened in a position. And that's the position that you and I fight from in this world that we live in we look up and we see that we have a high priest who intercedes for us and his hands will not get heavy because they're not being held up even on his own. They've been nailed there. Of his own volition and free will, he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross that we might look and say that if God spared not his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how will he not now with him freely give us all things? And thus the victory belongs to us though we live in a hostile world and we will face the hostility of this world on a very consistent basis. Know this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And he does not fail. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And so God needed them to know early on that he was with them for their physical needs that he was with them to be the only thing that could satisfy their deep spiritual need and that he was the one that was going to bring them to victory though he was leading them to walk through a hostile world even as he is for us. There's one more thing that God provided for them before all of this happened and it was the greatest need that any of them had and that was the forgiveness of their sin. On the night that they were set free from Egypt when the Passover lamb was slain, And the blood from that lamb was applied to the doorposts and the lintels of that heart. It represented of the door. It represented Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. And the blood of his cross being applied to the heart or the door of your life and my life. And as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that they were saved from Egypt and baptized in the Red Sea. The blood of that lamb represented the blood of salvation. And the reason why God could come into their life and meet their physical needs and be the satisfaction for the spiritual thirst and be the one that would lead them and give them victory in this world is because he first came into this world as a lamb and paid the price that their sins might be forgiven. And don't be deceived. Though God is an ever-present help in trouble and though he's the one that meets every single need that we have no matter what it is, the greatest need that any one of us have is to have our sins forgiven. Because if we have every other need met, if we find that our soul is satisfied, if we find victory at every passage, but if our sins are not forgiven, then what we end up with at the end of it all is a net zero. Because we still end up separated from God for all of eternity. Inasmuch as man has a God-shaped hole in his heart, God also had a man-shaped hole in his heart. And God's love for you and I was such that he was willing to send his son into the world to be the sacrifice, the atoning payment for the sins that we committed. And he did that because he so loved you and I that he wanted our sins to be forgiven and the relationship between us and him to be restored and set right. You say, what does this have to do with Good Friday? Everything, and here's why. Because everything that God did for them, not just in those things that we looked at tonight, but everything that God ever did for them from the beginning all the way to the end comes right back to that moment of the cross and that place of the cross. The Passover lamb obviously speaks of Jesus who was our Passover and who was sacrificed for us as he died and bled upon the cross. Jesus would say in John chapter six concerning the 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 bread that came down from heaven in John chapter 6 verse 32 it says that Jesus said unto them verily verily I say unto you that Moses gave you not that bread which came from heaven but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of god is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world so even in that that god provided there uh, physical needs through the manna that fell in the wilderness jesus says you guys missed the point of what that was so, was was pointing to it was pointing to the one who would come from heaven and give his life for the ransom of the sins of the world and so uh the the manna that rained down points to the cross also the water now i don't know if you caught it but when we read the first Verses of Exodus chapter 17, and God was saying to Moses how he would provide water for his people. Did you hear what God said? He said, Moses, I want you to stand upon the rock with the elders of Israel, and I will stand before you there. Exodus chapter 17, verse 6. And then you are to smite the rock. Now think about it. If Moses is standing, and God is standing in front of Moses before him, and Moses is to smite the rock, then who does Moses have to smite in order to get to the rock? He smites God. And so the water came forth from the rock because it pictured or typified Christ being smitten for the sins of the world. Paul would clarify it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, by saying that that rock was Christ. And thus, when Moses struck that rock, it was a prefiguring of what God would do in allowing his son to be smitten for the sake of the sins of mankind. And what happened when Jesus was smitten? It says that water and blood flowed from his side. And so it's because of the cross, it's because of his stripes, it says we did esteem him stricken smitten of god it says that we all like sheep have gone astray but the lord laid on him the iniquities of us all and so the water the satisfaction that god provides it's because of the cross the cross of jesus christ the victory that god gave to moses and joshua over amalek it's the cross It was when the man in the middle was fastened with his hands raised up on the hill. That's when the victory came. It's the cross. Are you seeing the picture? Is that all of eternity, everything that God has ever done from the moment he said, let there be light until the very end, when we say righteous and true are your judgments, O God, as we look back upon the whole span of the historical spectrum, all of it points to the cross. All of it is because of The cross you and I are alive in Jesus Christ tonight because of the cross our sins are forgiven because of the cross his promises are yes and amen in Christ because of the cross we sit here tonight satisfied to some degree no longer laying our head on the pillow at night wondering why we exist or what is the world for or where do I go when I die we stand secure in those things because of the cross And we are guaranteed that he will bring us from where we are to eternity because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this night is a night of nights because on it, we look back to that moment when God allowed his son, his precious son, the Lamb of God, to be slain, abused, forsaken, bled out and died absorbing in Himself the wrath that every sin that you and I ever committed deserved. And He absorbed it in Himself so that we could be brought into right relationship with Him and that we'd be able to close our eyes, fold our hands, and when we pray, say, Our Father. And say, Father, you've adopted me as your son or as your daughter. And you've made me so much more than a servant and so much more even than a friend. You've brought me into your family. And you've given to me the thing that I needed the most and the thing that I could never provide. And on top of that, you've promised to do everything that I will ever need in this life. We're going to take communion tonight as we commemorate this. And I would ask the ushers to come now um, to deliver it. On the Passover night, the final Passover when Jesus with his disciples there in the upper room sat together to eat the last meal before he would go to the cross and suffer he looked at them and he said with great desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer and he knew exactly what was going to happen to him a few hours earlier he had washed each one of their feet it says in that context that he knew who he was that he knew where he had come from and he knew where he was going and as he sat before them it says he lifted up the bread and he took it and they all looked at it and beheld it put yourself there as he held up that pita and he began to break it and he said this is my body what this bread represents. Not just the manna that fell in the wilderness that no doubt we'd be thinking of and remembering on this night. But this bread that you've broken in every Passover that you've ever had, every Passover that will ever be, this bread represents my body. And my body will be broken for you. My life is going to be torn to pieces in this sin-ravaged, cursed world is going to tear me with a tearing that I don't deserve, but that I'm taking on your behalf. And then it says that he gave it to them. We have such a giving God. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And that night Jesus gave the bread of his body to his disciples. And in time to look at it, he didn't say, here, I just want you to put this on a keychain and keep it as a keepsake and so that you can remember what I did for you. He didn't say, I want you to build a shrine or a building or a temple for it and put it in a box and you could worship it. He didn't say, sing songs and write songs to it or any of those things. He didn't say, this is a relic that you're to observe. He said, eat it. Make it as intimate with yourself as it is possible for it to be. Put it in your mouth, chew it up, and let it absorb into your bloodstream and let it become a part of you. Let me get in to you, Jesus was declaring that night at that supper. That's the only way that the bread of God can profit any of us is if we allow it into our lives, not on the surface, but into the soul. And thus we receive Him. And in the breaking of the bread, we symbolically receive of His person in our heart, and our life says that after supper he took the cup and he held it up before them and he said, this cup to you, it just looks like a cup of wine. It's the cup that we would share every Passover. It's, it's known by you. It's familiar to you. But this cup in my hand represents something totally different. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The covenant of the forgiveness of sins. The covenant that no longer says, if you can keep the law perfectly and observe religious rites and rituals, and if you can outperform others, then you can, no, 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 this is the new covenant. The new covenant that Jeremiah says that I will write my law within their heart. I will put my spirit within them and my laws will be in them. I will walk with them. The new covenant in my blood, he said, even the forgiveness of sin. The contents of my perfect life are being poured out and the life of my blood is being given to you. And then he said, drink ye all of it. Drink it, take it in, take my cup, take my life. And in exchange, he took ours. That was the cup that he drank in the garden that he asked three times that if there was any other way, that it could pass from him, but it didn't pass from him. That was our cup. That was the cup that my sin filled up. It was the cup that my selfishness, everything I am that's dark and unlovely, every layer of this wretched onion that makes me what I am was in that cup. And you too. And he took it. It was an exchange of cups. And he gave us his cup in exchange for ours. And he bids us to drink it. And then he gave them the command. He said, this do as often as you will in remembrance of me. For in so doing, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. It's remembrance of what he did and it's looking forward to what he would do. And on this night tonight, when we remember and recall that it's all because of Jesus that our sins have been forgiven. And that it's all in Christ that everything that he promises is a yes and an amen. And it's in Him and in this cross that guarantees that I will sit at His table one day and partake of this bread and of this cup in His presence, looking upon Him as the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, all because of the cross. As we take communion tonight on this night, Good Friday, I wonder if maybe there's some of you here tonight that you just need a special touch from the Lord. Maybe in your life you you say, I've kind of dried up. And the Bible talks about times of refreshing and I find I need that time of refreshing. I need the reset button hit or I need a chapter to end and I just need God to just take the past month or the past six months or the past year and just break it off here and I need a fresh start. I need a fresh filling with this Holy Spirit here. As we partake of communion, we're just gonna take a moment of silence here before we partake all together. And if you're in that place tonight, I would just maybe invite you just to stand where you are I'm not going to make you come forward or anything like that. You're just saying to God, you're saying, God, tonight I want to I, I wanna be filled again with you. I, I know you. I'm saved. But I need your Holy Spirit in my life. I need to be refueled, God. I need to be refocused. I need just something changed, something to wash off. And standing, just standing up. And maybe there's one or two Christians around that would just maybe come and, 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 and pray for you. And, and just for just a moment, you say, God, Change me. God, fill me. God, I need to be renewed. You could do that. Stand. If, if you just need to be changed, stand right where you are. It's not for judgment. If there's someone around that, just maybe lay a gentle hand on a shoulder and maybe just pray. Pray for these people. Go ahead, Lori. Maybe there's something else going on in your life. That's not it. But there's a circumstance. You have something happening that's just eating at you and you can't put it down. There's, uh, I call it helicopters in my, in my mind. It's just I'm, there's something I can't get it out and I'm just looking for a landing place and I can burn it down to the ground until it just crashes and burns, until there's fresh steam. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe it's a marriage thing. Maybe you have a prodigal in your life, a, a child, a son or daughter not walking with Christ maybe a situation or circumstance tonight, you just need God. You need to know that He's with you. We'll sing another verse of this. If that's you, I just invite you to stand. Stand and bring it before the Lord and let the body of Christ minister to you and pray for you tonight. stand and you could be seated. Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, as we come to your table and as we commemorate, Lord, what you did for us. And we believe that you're here even right now. and We believe that you hear every prayer. You see the heart cry of every one of us here. You know what is our greatest need tonight. Lord, you know who needs healing. You know who needs restoration. You know who needs forgiveness. You know who needs a miracle. You know who needs encouragement, who needs to hear your voice. God, you know who needs direction. And Father, we're asking tonight, Lord, that by your stripes, according to the blood that was shed upon the cross, and according to the love that you professed towards us in the promise you gave, Lord, we're asking tonight that you would meet with each one of us here. It is our great collective desire, O God, that you would be first and foremost in our lives. Lord, we can get so far from you. But your word says that you're an ever-present help in trouble. And you said that underneath all that we are, are the everlasting arms. And you said you would bear us up on eagle's wings, that you would keep us as the apple of your eye. And you said that you're with us always, even to the end of the age. And so as we stand from this point looking back and from this point looking forward to your return, O God, as we partake tonight of your bread, of your body, and of your cup, and your forgiveness and your love, O how I pray, dear Lord, that everything that it represents would be given to us, that we would be filled, that we would be healed, that we would be revived, and that you would be the Lord of our lives in every way. So thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us. And it's in your name that we partake and bless you. Let's partake together. May we stand in your strength, Father. May we go with the sense that you're with us. And may you be all that we need. May your face ever be before us, O Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.